From the enterprise team at Zoho, this is Business Unusual, the show about companies and their leaders who have achieved success by doing things their way. I'm Arun Srinivasan. And I'm Austin Reese. As your host, we'll be taking you through stories you've never heard, or stories you thought you knew, of entrepreneurs and business leaders who succeeded on their own terms, outside conventional business wisdom. Welcome back to Business Unusual. Austin, we took a little small summer hiatus, but we're back for season three with six new episodes, and I'm, I'm super excited. I don't know about you. Yeah, I'm, I'm real excited. I've really missed our conversations. I've missed getting to do these episodes and learn about these really fascinating people that have started big companies and, and doing things differently and, and you know changing the world in their little small place in it. So yeah, I'm excited to jump back in and, and hear what you have for us. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things for me that I love is we're doing the research for these individuals. It's such a learning experience. And I really love not only doing the research, but then delivering the story because that's really the fun of it is getting to hear firsthand some of the kind of secret stories about how these entrepreneurs grew these businesses and did so against the grain differently than everybody else and really breaking the mold, so to speak, of how to grow a business. Yeah, I think we take for granted a lot of times these companies, these products and services that are just out there and we use and have taken advantage of. And we just think, you know, they happened and they appeared one day. And there's a lot that goes behind it. There's years and years of work, of failure, of learning, of trying things differently. And, you know, maybe it working, maybe it not working. And the paths, you know, they're not always the same. They're winding, they're different for everyone. But it is cool to see some similarities that we're starting to gather from a lot of these characters we're talking about. And I know, you know, for our listeners that maybe you're just jumping in, last season, season two, we, we focused on Austin, Texas specifically and some companies there, but we're going to get back into just looking at everyone now. We we kind of did a, a short focus season, but now for season three, we're going to look at, at founders and CEOs of companies across the world. Exactly. And, and when you talk about across the world, the one that we're going to cover today is literally across the world and started in a country called Sweden. So today we're talking about Ikea. Now I'm going to guess most of you guys out there have at least heard of Ikea. Austin, are you familiar with Ikea? Oh yes. To, uh, for good reasons and bad reasons, I would say, Yeah, (laughs) you know, um, we have one in Round Rock. So just a little bit North here of Austin. And I've been there many times with my wife, uh, looking for, you know, a specific piece of furniture or, or a little something to go in our house. And it, it's, you know, sometimes, like I said, it's a fun experience to go through the store and see all the layouts, but sometimes it can be a little bit of a drag because that store gets crowded real fast. And you've been, I assume you have to, you know, start one, one area, you have to kind of weave your way through the whole store to get, to get to certain areas. And so it's, exactly. um, yeah. And anybody who's been to an Ikea knows that it's a very unique experience. You start, as you said, Austin, at one end, and it's not like a Walmart or, you know, any store, any typical department store where you walk in, you go to where you need to go, get your stuff and leave. Ikea really winds you through a journey through their store. So you can't really go in and spend five minutes there. And they're also known for inexpensive furniture that you put together yourself. And I know as a college student, you know, I made many trips to Ikea to buy bookcases and beds and desks and, and all that stuff because it was affordable as a college student and it had a good kind of aesthetic. And I yeah. admit even today we have a, a piece of IKEA furniture. We have a day bed in our in our guest room 
that it just looked really good and we couldn't find anything that looked that good anywhere else. And so we, we bought it at Ikea. Yeah, they really, you know, they really changed the game as far as stylish, affordable furniture in, in regards to that. I remember just you would see pieces at restaurants or coffee shops and, you know, it'd be from Ikea and, you know, you would think that it's super expensive and, and it really was more affordable and they just really found a niche in that market. I, uh, a quick aside before we jump into it, I read a really funny story. A few years ago, a journalist spent 24 hours or, or at least the entire time that Ikea was open inside the store following couples around and just kind of uh, writing down the arguments they were having in the store, which mm-hmm. I thought was a really funny um, story. <laughs> it was just funny to see people, you know, you know, disagree on, on what would work inside their home and, um, mm-hmm. you know, maybe have kids in tow and just them losing it. It was a very funny story. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's dive right in. For those of you who don't know, IKEA is a conglomerate that designs and sells ready-to-assemble furniture, kitchen appliances, and home accessories, among, among other goods. It was founded in Sweden in 1943 by 17-year-old Ingvar Komprad, and IKEA has been the world's largest furniture retailer since 2008. They're known for their modernist designs for various types of appliances and furniture, and its interior design work is often associated with eco-friendly simplicity. Now, it's also known for being low-cost, but with a design aesthetic that puts it, say, above Walmart. There are now 433 IKEA stores across 53 different countries, and in 2019, they had global retail sales of about 45.5 billion. So they're definitely a global conglomerate now. Wow! I mean, just hearing that right now, I'm struck by two things. Um, first, that it's been around since the 40s. That that's something I had no idea about. And second, that it was it was started by a 17 year old. Is that what you said, 17? I can't wait to hear this story because I I know when I was 17, I was nowhere near starting a a billion, you know, multi-billion dollar company like this. So I can't wait to hear how this happened. Right. And I'm going to take a wild guess and say that none of us, including all of our listeners, were at at age 17 on the brink of building a $45.5 billion company. No, and and changing an industry the way it has. So this this is crazy. Yeah. So how did a Swedish boy from the Swedish countryside become a teenage founder of a global enterprise? Well, in the Swedish province of Småland, where Ingvar lived, the stony land produced poor crops and farming really wasn't enough to survive. So people had to be innovative, creative, strong, and stubborn. So families were thrifty and many became entrepreneurs to make ends meet, uh, selling homemade goods or preserved foods. So instead of doubling down on chores or helping with his family's farm chores, in 1931, the five-year-old Ingvar began selling matches, an essential item in every home. And he gained some traction and he realized that he might be able to sell other things. And so he rode his mother's bicycle to farms selling fish, garden seeds, and other must-haves for the local population. And I'm going to pause right here because it's very interesting talking about these childhood stories of entrepreneurs, because we see this time and time again with Damon John, with Kevin Systrom, people that we've covered in the past. Austin, I'm sure you could name a couple of others that we've covered, that we've talked about, of these young entrepreneurs starting at a very young age with a hustle and then blooming or blossoming into a multi-million, billion dollar entrepreneur. 
Yeah. Uh, Chuck Feeney comes to mind. Um, I'm sure there are others, but you're right. Just that, that kind of early spark and, and inspiration to, to do this. And so throughout his time, Ingvar learned the very basics of economy. You know, he was able to keep prices really low in order to make a profit from these relatively modest sales. Now, at age 14, he moved to attend a boarding school nearby. And ever the entrepreneur, he kept a stock of pens, watches, wallets, and belts under his bed. And he realized his classmates needed these. Now, he was too young to set up the company he wanted. So his father gave legal consent and paid the registration fee as a graduate present in 1943. Talk about a real investment in your uh, kid's future, you know. Right. Like, not tuition or anything like that, but just uh, investing in <laughs> getting the business. Right. So taking this registration fee as a present and his knowledge of economics and, and his knowledge of basically being a, an entrepreneur, in 1943, Ingvar Komprad founded IKEA as a small mail-order business. So the IKEA name was born using Ingvar Komprad's initials, plus Elmtart, the family farm, and Agunriard, the farm's <laughs> parish in Smallland. So I'm probably butchering those names. They are Swedish words, but it was a combination of his name, plus the family farm's name, plus the, the farm's parish in Smallland. I'm, I'm glad you went there because that was going to be a question of mine is, is where did <laughs> the name come from? I think we always want to know that. Right. And I've butchered the explanation, but hopefully everybody gets the, the picture here. Just a combination of, of, of letters that are, you know, stand for names and farm names and things like that. Sure. Yeah. And so as he, as he started this mail order business, he realized that success depended on the simplest, most cost efficient distribution from factory to customer. And for Ikea then, this meant direct import and mail order, mainly of watches and pens. But Pens had issues, so Ingvar saved to invest in something else. But as I mentioned, they weren't selling furniture quite yet. Furniture would be something else. It was offered as a sensible experiment. The post-war Swedish government had built lots of housing and offered home furnishing loans. Plus, Smallland had many small furniture factories. When furniture debuted in the 1948 IKEA brochure, Ingvar wrote that IKEA would offer more if customers showed reasonable interest. And it turns out that they did. But in the 1950s, many Swedish furniture retailers felt threatened by the low prices of IKEA products. So they put pressure on suppliers to boycott the IKEA brand. They tried to prevent Ingvar from exhibiting or even visiting furniture fairs. But every challenge has a solution. This was one of the reasons that he started to look for collaborations abroad. So in 1951, Ingvar published his first annual IKEA furniture catalog. And in 1953, in the town of Almhut, he opened a showroom where customers looked at displays and placed orders. The first store was opened in Almhut, Smoland in 1958 under the name Mobel IKEA. And Mobel, and I might be saying this right, it might be Mobel, means furniture in Swedish. Let me back up a second. So he was originally discouraged from, from selling the furniture because the prices were too low? Is that what you said? Yeah. So essentially what happened was in the 1950s when he started this furniture business because he, he saw that there was a demand for it, he was met with a hurdle of furniture manufacturers feeling like they need to boycott IKEA because their prices were too low. And he was undercutting many, many other retailers in Sweden. So 
in order to get over that hurdle, he started sourcing furniture from other countries. Got it. Okay. That makes sense. I, I think it's interesting that he, you know, we know Ikea for being affordable. And I think you can see that direct line with him, you know, being a five-year-old selling matches and, you know, being from that community where, you know, you know, he had to think about affordability, I think, from the beginning. So it's interesting to see that being a driver, um, you know, up until Ikea is founded and he starts introducing furniture and even, you know, faces some real pushback and maybe, you know, some worry that he might not have success doing this because of these potential boycotts. I mean, it, you know, every solu- every problem has a solution, right? And, and again, a true hustler's mentality is to find a way out of it. You know, as I mentioned, the first store opened in Almolt, Småland. The first stores outside of Sweden were opened in Norway in 1963 and Denmark in 1969. Now, the store spread to other parts of Europe in the 1970s, with the first store outside of Scandinavia opening in Switzerland in 1973, followed by West Germany in 1974. And obviously, IKEA at that point just you know spread like wildfire and continued spreading throughout the world, reaching the U.S. in 1985 and Latin America in 2010. Now, of course, the growth of IKEA from 19, the 1970s to today is you know much like any other very popular company that starts spreading globally, making money, and eventually growing to this 45 plus billion dollar company. But Truthfully, I want to dive in now to the things that Ingvar did that were very different. And we kind of touched on a couple of them, but I want to take a deeper dive into those and explore how they allowed IKEA to really grow into this multi-billion dollar company. Now, one of the first things is, is really a character trait. And Ingvar personally prioritized relationships in everything he did. He's known to be legendary for his hugging. And for him, relationships defined a workplace culture. This prioritization of relationships also helped him create favorable relationships with many vendors and get good pricing. And contrary to the sort of take every inch or hard-ass attitude that we see elsewhere, Ingvar really prioritized a leading with love, leading with good intentions. And I think that allowed him to really form these great relationships with vendors, get good pricing, and get good product. Yeah, that is an interesting point and, and something I enjoy hearing because I think we think of executives or founders, you know, these people that create these these empires as trampling over people as they go and just really not valuing other people and, and you know, kind of having to hurt others on the way to the top. So it's it's a very encouraging part of his personality to hear this. And I'm 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 happy that we're we're hearing about it. Yeah, you know, it's always nice to hear about a founder who's not kind of ruling with an iron fist, right? And, you know, one of the other things he says is it's okay to make mistakes, right? In fact, in IKEA, it's encouraged. And Ingvar famously said, only a sleeping person makes no mistakes. And Ingvar's saying about making mistakes even rubbed off on his son, who also picked up the baton from his father and would ask, what mistakes have you made today? Now, he's not doing it to chastise or lay blame, but he wants to know what you've learned today. And the saying, you have the right to make mistakes and the obligation to learn from them, he says, has guided him to be braver than he might have been. That's an interesting point. And it reminds me of someone we profiled in season one, uh, Suichiro Honda. He had that very much that same mentality, 
of, you know, wanting to make mistakes and how it, you know, life is just built on, you know, the backs of all these mistakes until you, you find the right way to do it. And, you know, he came kind of from the same era, the, the post-war forties up through the fifties and sixties and seventies. And it's just an interesting parallel to, to Suichiro's story. Yeah. When we focus on these things about making mistakes and his focus on relationships, it really, you start to understand more and more about what makes him special, right? And what makes him different. And, you know, another thing that he did that's different is he really focused on his employees' abilities over their qualifications. And so I think even today, this is done where every employee that joins has to take a personality test. And the personality test helps articulate what sort of kind of person that that person is to find the best situation within the company for them. So for example, uh, one employee said, the HR woman said to me, you're the kind of person who gets to 70 miles per hour as quickly as possible and then stays within it. And the employee said, I stared at her and gulped. That's exactly how I got here today. As Ingvar said, over the years, I learned that the personality test often told me more about a person's potential to perform well in the company than their experience and qualifications did. You can always teach a good person a new skill, but you can't make someone change their core values or behavior to work well with others. And so this means that in focusing on attitude, aptitude, and personal traits over, say, qualifications and experience, you're more likely to have better performing people around you. And it's no coincidence that within and across IKEA, you often see people pop up in totally different roles, ones that they're going to excel at despite what their resume might have indicated. So these these last two points you've made about um, about him, I we always like to make parallels with these companies to Zoho, and I think th- the past two things you said is just you know very blatant, just you know really spot on. It sounds so familiar the way that our executives you know run this company, the way um, I think you and I have experienced things across different teams, the freedom to make mistakes, you know, hiring the people that you believe in and, and letting them go try things. That's something that we really cherish and value here. Something that I think has kept both of us at the company for so long because we have opportunities to try new things and and make mistakes and learn and then redo them. And then second, the idea of, you know, really hiring people over over resumes or, or backgrounds like that, or, you know, degrees or educations. And I think, you know, it's really, it's really striking and very cool to see the parallels between our, our companies here. Yep, exactly. And I love, you know, at Soho, even this podcast is a great, you know, example of that mentality, right? We decided that we wanted to try this. And it's not that you and I have podcasting experience, but we thought it would be a great idea and something fun for for everyone. Yeah, they, you know, they give us the freedom to to come up with ideas and just, you know, trust us to follow through. So another thing that IKEA did was they really decided to focus on a different style of experience. And we kind of talked about this earlier, which is that customers are forced to follow a path through the store as opposed to a normal retail retail store where you go directly to the product you're looking for. And at IKEA, furniture is sort of set up in its natural environment, which according to one psychologist says, your brain appreciates. And every single thing there is contextually in position. The brain then perceives it, it understands its inherent value, and therefore desires it. That's an interesting way of viewing it. And I guess I've never thought about the psychology behind it. But of course, that makes sense. I think from from my experiences, I always viewed the setups of the rooms and the displays as almost just like a catalog come to life. And you get to be in that space, you know, physically. 
And I think not all of us are, are interior designers. Not everyone has the eye to to grab pieces and put them together. But when you contextualize it, like you just said, and, and lay it out where things go together, it's a lot easier to to see how you know that nightstand can go with this bed frame or this lamp fits here. And I, I imagine also it increases the the amount of you know products that people are buying when you put them next to each other, right? It's like, hey, if you buy this this bedding. Um, it matches this other piece really perfectly. So why not just grab both at the same time? And you hit the nail on the head. So one of the things that Alan Penn, who's a professor in London, who studied how shoppers navigate and buy things at Ikea, he said, part of their strategy is to take you past everything. And they get you to buy stuff that you really hadn't even intended on. And it's quite the trick. Yeah, it seems to be working. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. And so, you know, another thing that they did as far as this experience is they added a restaurant in each Ikea that serves sort of traditional Swedish fare. And the idea behind offering the food options was that once you feed your customers, they stay for longer and they make decisions about purchases over the food while they're eating without even leaving the store. And the food prices at Ikea are so low, especially at the bistro and the restaurant, because it's intended to generate more profit to the company through furniture sales. And some of the food product doesn't really even generate any profit. It's just to keep people in the store, considering their buying decisions and create that experience again. Ingvar was known for saying, you can't do business with someone on an empty stomach. <laughs> yeah, those those meatballs are legendary. I mean, everyone knows about the Swedish meatballs at Ikea. And I, I, I kind of, I've kind of related to, you know, a lot of tech companies, they have food delivered, they have the exercise rooms on campus they have you know sleep pods and you know on on one level you're like oh that's very nice and it's a very cool thing to have but it really does it keeps you there it, it keeps you you know producing and in ikea's case it keeps shoppers you know happy and not wanting to leave because the stomach's growling or their kids are you know starting to get fussy because they haven't had anything to eat so very smart right moving past experience i want to talk about another thing that they did which is i don't know if i'd call it necessarily different, but it, it's definitely a road less traveled now, which is a, a massive focus, putting a massive focus on delivering value and specifically low cost. And so the question always arises is, is how is Ikea, Ikea able to keep their costs so low? And so they do a lot of different things. One of the things is the flat packing of furniture to reduce costs because that allows them to fit more furniture into shipping trucks and more furniture into their warehouses, right? Because they're all in these flat packed boxes rather than, you know, fully built sort of beds and couches and stuff like that. And so from an inventory standpoint, it allows them to be much more efficient and save on costs. The way that the company really reverse engineers this cost is that they first decide on the price of a piece of furniture, and then they reverse engineer the construction based on what they want the price to be. And at Ikea, Wasting resources is like a mortal sin. So before you choose a solution, set it in relation to cost, and only then can you fully determine its worth. And so things are really designed for the consumer in order for them to spend less. And part of that even works with IKEA's design because IKEA's aesthetic is pared down and very minimal, which is really not by accident because uncomplicated forms with very little applied decoration are easier to manufacture and more can be produced in a shorter amount of time, therefore increasing efficiency and decreasing production costs. So you really see a lot goes into this engineering as far as the strategy behind it to keep costs low. 
Yeah, it's a perfect example of the simplest things are the hardest things, right? It's not, you know, simple things aren't easy. They're very complicated and they take a lot of thought to become simple. And I, I assume on part of that cost is also the putting together the pieces they've left in the hands of the, the, the customers. You know, it's, you know, it comes in a flat box, you go home and you do it yourself with, the, you know, the Allen wrench and the few pieces that they've provided and they don't have to pay they don't have to pay employees to to assemble bed frames and things like that. And, and it's just another piece of the puzzle. Exactly. And they keep these prices low, but with meaning, you know, they, as, as he says, we must not compromise either functionality or technical quality. It's really the definition of sort of no frills, right? That brings us to the end of our story with Ikea. And, you know, before we leave any story, I always like to kind of summarize these points of doing things differently and see if you can apply them as an executive or an entrepreneur to your own business. So to summarize these points first, of course, this goes without saying, prioritize relationships and really make sure that, uh, you know, you're leading with good intentions with every relationship, whether it's external to the company or internal, because Externally, you'll get people who want to do business with you. And internally, you're going to get people who want to work hard for you. And you know, know that it's okay and let people know that it's okay to make mistakes because mistakes are the best way to learn, right? And we always talk about this, the old cliche, uh, you learn more from failure than success. But really putting it into practice and creating a culture where mistakes are okay is a whole nother thing, right? Now, this is a big one, which is the focusing on abilities over qualifications. And that's really hard because we all like to look at resumes and CVs to really see you know, what people's experiences have been and what results have they generated. But a lot of times, those results or experiences are not necessarily in line with their best abilities. And a lot of times, you can get more out of somebody by focusing on what they're good at, not what they've done. And sometimes, I think, speaking from experience at Zoho, is just like, that point is finding the right fit for somebody. So it's like, you know, maybe you hired them for a certain role, but a lot of times that's just the role that happened to be open. And there's some somewhere else at the company you can use them. And I think it's like having the the not the insight and the wisdom to find that place. Yes, I hundred percent agree, Austin. And I want to challenge you also to focus on creating a different or unique experience. So when IKEA, you know, generated their experience as far as winding you through the store and adding the the restaurant, it was really something that nobody else had done before. So consider taking your customers on a different experience than they're used to and do things differently in order to get them to spend more time with you and more consideration for what you're offering. And then think about also applying a focus on value and potentially reverse engineering your offerings to deliver a, a high value to your customers. And in this case, with Ikea's case, it's cost, but maybe for you, the value is something else, but really consider engineering your product or your offering with the number one value that you want to deliver to your customer first and kind of working backwards. That was, that was great, Arun. Um, that was a really cool story to hear. And currently I know we're in the market for a new dining room table. So this is just giving me more of an incentive to go check out Ikea for what they got. Right. And if there's any 17-year-olds out there listening, don't be afraid to start your next $45.5 billion business. (laughs) Business Unusual is brought to you by Zoho, an enterprise platform that adapts to your company. From sales, marketing, and customer support to finance, human resources, and a low-code developer platform, Zoho software solutions address virtually every area of business. Go to zoho.com slash enterprise today and discover a refreshingly different way of doing business.